Some say that you have to interpret the Bible literally, that you can't spiritualize. But yet these same people spiritualize where they want to. In other words, they say only spiritual children of Abraham are members of the new covenant and not their physical children. But then they don't spiritualize Canaan. They say it is the literal fulfillment in a literal future, in a literal Canaan to literal Israelites. So let me get this straight. Literal Israelites have literal children who literally receive literal promises, but spiritual Israelites, that is Gentile believers in the new covenant who also have literal children, cannot have promises literally applied to them. It's inconsistent. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 10.15 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Uh, this morning, I want you to take your Bibles to begin with and turn with me to the book of First Peter. First Peter chapter 3. As many of you know, I've been teaching a series in Sunday school on the topic of baptism. And this morning, uh, I want to preach a message to you that I've entitled, Waters That Shouldn't Divide. Waters That Shouldn't Divide. It is my opinion that the issue of baptism and whatever position you may take on baptism, um, and of course I want to qualify that a little bit, should not be an issue of dividing with other Christians over. First uh, Peter chapter 3 gives to us uh, the words of the Apostle Peter writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says this beginning in verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Forever desires to love life and see good days. Let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. 
Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you because your word is truth. Father, we ask that you would help us as we continue to think on this issue of baptism. Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts and minds, even as Peter says, that are humble, a unity of mind, a sympathy of brotherly love. Lord, that we might understand the implications and applications of what your word teaches regarding baptism, that we may do so, Lord, as thinking Christians, yielded in complete subjection to your Holy Spirit. We'll praise you and we'll thank you for that and we ask all of these things in the blessed name of Christ our Savior, we pray, amen. There is no greater passion in my life than the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, I can tell you this morning that my heart beats with the Apostle Paul. For example, when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, these words, He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. And then Paul says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. God did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. My heart beats with the Apostle Paul because I am convinced that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ does, can, and should divide people within the church. In other words, there are people who profess to be Christians who have proven not to be Christians either by their false beliefs or their immoral lifestyles. They have proven to be goats, not sheep. And Paul tells us that we are to separate from such people. In fact, in the book of Galatians, Paul is very clear that such people are anathema. Such people are cursed. They have a special place assigned to them in hell. Paul is saying that there are other people that are connected to the visible church that Christians have an obligation to separate from when it comes to the gospel. But apparently Paul, as he writes to the Corinthians, did not view the subject of baptism as an issue to divide with among other Christians. He says, I think God I baptize none of you And then he remembers Crispus and Gaius and Stephanus' entire household. And then he says, beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. This was such an insignificant thing to me, baptism was, that I, I don't even remember exactly who I baptized. This is simply an ordinance of the church. This is simply a sign of the gospel, Paul is saying, but this is not the gospel itself. Christ did not send me to baptize, but Christ did send me to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I resonate very well with what Paul says here, because for me, the issue of baptism is intensely personal. 
When I was four, maybe five years old, it was before I was in school, I stood with my father in the waters of baptism in Huntington, West Virginia, Virginia at Centerville Baptist Church, the same Baptist church that two of my great-great-grandfathers had pastored at different times. I was baptized in those waters. I come from a long line of pastors, a long line of preachers. As a matter of fact, just yesterday, one of my cousins who was also a pastor and a preacher called me. I haven't talked to him in years, and we talked a little bit about our history together. And my history goes all the way back to the 1700s. My fifth great-grandfather immigrated to the United States, and he settled in Beaver County, Pennsylvania, right around Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. There is evidence that suggests he thought that Beaver County was part of West Virginia. Uh, He thought he was settling in West Virginia because map sophistication wasn't what it is today. He was an elder at Service Presbyterian Church in Beaver County, which is still in existence today. The church is still standing. I've been there. He's buried in the cemetery there with his wife who was also buried next to him. He was instrumental in establishing the first Presbyterian seminary west of the Allegheny Mountains. It's known today as Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. It's gone through several different name changes, but that is where Dr. R.C. Sproul studied for the ministry, Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. That is where R.C. Sproul is from. But interestingly enough, two of his sons floated down the Ohio River to the wilds of West Virginia, And they began a long, generational, successive sort of deal where they became pioneer Baptist preachers. And all over southern West Virginia, they planted Baptist churches. They were elders in Baptist churches. And I've always asked the question, did they leave Pennsylvania? Did they leave the Presbyterian church over the issue of baptism? Now, I'm inclined to think that They did not leave over that issue. In fact, I'm inclined to believe the opposite because there were essentially no Presbyterian churches in West Virginia at the time and even in Pennsylvania where there were Presbyterian churches, Presbyterian ministers were were very hard to come by. Presbyterians required that you were educated and ordained in their seminaries and I just told you that there were virtually no Presbyterian seminaries in that particular area of Appalachia at that time in the 1700s, so much so that my fifth great-grandfather's pastor was a a man by the name of John Anderson who was an eminent professor of theology and pastor at Service Presbyterian Church. They had to go all the way to Scotland to get him because the scarcity of, of ministers was prevalent in that region. There were no Presbyterian churches, there were no seminaries, and so I believe that my ancestors who came from Presbyterianism, who ended up being pioneer Baptist preachers, I believe that they became Baptists not based on conviction, but based on convenience. It was easy to plant a Baptist church, become a Baptist minister. You didn't have to be educated, Uh, you just preached the Bible. Now for me, to make the switch from a credo-baptist to a pedo-baptist is not a matter of convenience, I assure you of that. It is a matter of conviction. My entire life, I've been in Bible churches 
Baptist churches, independent Baptist churches, Southern Baptist churches were the only form of baptism that was taught that was legitimately biblical was baptism by immersion, baptism only for believers. My education has been only in schools, whether it was my Bachelor of Arts in Bible, whether it was my Master of Divinity in seminary, whether it was my doctorate degree, all of my degrees have come from Baptist theologians. Baptist professors, my entire network, my entire system of friends who are pastors, all of it is wrapped up with those who believe that baptism should only be applied to the disciples of Jesus alone. So I assure you that any switch I make from credo-baptism to pedo-baptism is not rooted in convenience. It is the epitome of inconvenience to make that switch. My convictions are rooted in the word of God. And my switch is rooted in conviction, not in convenience. For my ancestors, I think it was rooted in convenience, not conviction. For me, it's rooted in conviction, not convenience. Now, I don't know where you are at on the subject of baptism, But in saying all this, I want to say this very clearly. I don't think that it's the most important issue. Paul is clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's not the most important issue. Paul says, Christ sent me to preach the gospel. That's what I want to do. The gospel, Paul would say in Romans chapter 1, is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But, In full disclosure, I think that as your pastor, I owe it to you to give a sort of apologetic on why I am making the switch from credo-baptism to pedo-baptism. And I'll begin by making this statement. There has not been one book that I have read arguing for infant baptism that has convinced me to become a pedo-baptist. There has not been one person who is a pedo-baptist who has convinced me to become a pedo-baptist. As a matter of fact, virtually every single pedo-baptist that I have spoken to has pushed against my understanding of pedo-baptism and almost convinced me to remain a credo-baptist. There's been no book. There's been no individual. There has been no sermon. There has been no pastor. There has been no elder. There has been no deacon. Nobody has convinced me to adopt pedo-baptism. And yet, I am convinced that it's the most biblical position. Why is that? Here's the reason. Over 20 years of consistently preaching the word of God week in and week out, which is a very long process, it has become clear to me that the overwhelming weight of evidence pushes in the favor of pedo-baptism. I read 1 Peter 3, verse 15, But in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a hope, for the reason for the hope that is in you, and do it with gentleness and respect. The reality is I probably would have made this switch long ago if I wasn't a minister of the gospel. But as a minister of the gospel, I'm a minister of both the word and the sacrament. What does James tell us? He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness or greater judgment. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands 
of God, to be evaluated by God based on your beliefs, to be evaluated by God based upon what you teach, uh, to be evaluated by God based upon what you practice as a minister of the gospel. For me, I'll be 41 next month. This issue of baptism I have studied essentially since the day I was baptized. As a four or five year old, I have always asked the questions related to baptism. What is the most biblical form of baptism? As a minister in Baptist churches, ordained as a Baptist minister, it was by default that I would practice believers only baptism because that was what was part of the covenants and the creeds of those churches. But I always had the nagging question in the back of my mind, is this really the most biblical form of baptism? Now, my opinion is that the waters of baptism should not divide because I think that sound Christians on both sides disagree. And what has taken me years to be convinced of, I can't expect you to be convinced of in one sermon or in five or six Sunday school lessons. Nevertheless, I think the weight of evidence that the Bible teaches and favors infant baptism to believers' baptism alone I can reduce down to five weighty arguments. And I want to try to cover these for you this morning. You can make the argument for covenantal infant baptism on one hand. Five weighty arguments in favor of covenantal infant baptism. Let me list them to you and then we'll begin working through them. Number one, what I want to call the consistency of church history. Number two, the clarity on New Testament examples of baptism. Number three, the consideration of the meaning of the covenant signs. Fourth, the continuity of covenant membership. And fifth, the comparison of the new covenant to the old covenant as a better covenant. Now let me just say at the beginning, I am under no illusion that I am going to convince you to switch your position in one sermon. That's not my intent. My intent this morning is to provide an apologetic as to why I am making this switch. You'll have to come to your own conclusion on the matter, the Spirit of God helping you. But five weighty arguments that I think the Bible favors covenantal infant baptism. Number one, the consistency of church history. Now all of these arguments are starting with the least convincing. All right? So my first point is, is, not, is not the home run. All right? It is the one that holds the least amount of weight. But the consistency of church history more than suggests the validity of covenantal infant baptism. In fact, the vast majority of church history has affirmed infant baptism to the point that it essentially wasn't even a debate until the time of the Reformation. Now, this doesn't prove that infant baptism should be practiced by the church, but it should at least cause well-meaning and well-thinking Christians to be prepared to explain why the church has been wrong for hundreds and hundreds of years for practicing infant baptism if, in fact, it isn't biblical. The consistency of church history in practicing infant baptism, I think, is a weighty argument. There's a man by the name of Jehoiakim Jeremiah who wrote a, 
a large volume of work regarding the history of baptism in the first four centuries of the church. He was a German scholar, and he notes that the first person in extant literature that questioned infant baptism didn't come until the second century. The particular person that began questioning infant baptism was church father Tertullian middle of the second century and even Tertullian conceded the fact that the universal practice of the church in his day was infant baptism so from all of the first century to the middle of the second century when the church is ironing out theological controversies and theological questions nobody that we know about on record ever argued against the practice of infant baptism until Tertullian did in the middle of the second century century you go to the third century origin church father living from 185 to 251 said that the practice of infant baptism was handed down listen to this by the apostles by the apostles cyprian also in the third century lived from the year 200 to 258 the bishop of carthage argued forcefully in favor of pedo-baptism and many of you know when we go to the fourth century the most famous of all theologians other than the apostle paul is augustine and augustine in his debates with pelagius argued for infant baptism saying that it was the common and acceptable universal practice of the church So for the first 200 years, infant baptism was not only practiced, but it was practiced undisturbed as a legacy passed down by the apostles. And going back to Tertullian, when he would argue against infant baptism, the first one to do it that we know of on record, he was arguing against against it on, on the basis of pragmatic grounds. Pragmatic grounds. Statements such as the one Origen makes that infant baptism was handed down by the apostles does not prove that in fact it was handed down by the apostles, but Origen did state that it was. That was his belief. Anyone throughout church history that argued against infant baptism usually argued against it on pragmatic grounds. They would say something like this. Infant baptism is practiced by too many people that believe simply by sprinkling a baby, it makes that baby automatically a citizen of heaven. And because people believe in baptismal regeneration, therefore we need to do away with infant baptism. Now, on Tertullian's part, going back to Tertullian, he actually argued against infant baptism for this reason. He said that you should delay baptism for adults if the baby, who is not yet an adult, is healthy. If you think the baby is going to live, you delay baptism until they're an adult. Why did he say that? Because he believed that baptism involved the remission of sins. He believed that baptism washed away sins. And then he was quick to say, That if a baby was unhealthy, you needed to baptize it because that baby had original sin. And if that baby died with that original sins, without the remission of sins, then he would die and enter a Christless eternity. So even Tertullian, 
who said that you should baptize sick infants was not wholly against infant baptism. And his argument for infant baptism was not based on an orthodox argument. It was based on the fact that you wanted to lay baptism until the final day because there could be some sin that an adult could commit and he needs to be baptized at the last minute for the remission of his sins. This is, by the way, why Constantine was not baptized until his deathbed because he believed in a form of baptismal regeneration. That was his legacy. There have been other people throughout church history, not to belabor the point, people like the Waldensians or the Waldenses. There was a sect of the Waldensians who said that um, babies should not be baptized because they are not capable of salvation. They aren't capable of living a life of self-denial. They're not capable of poverty. They're not capable of working for their salvation. Therefore, babies should not be baptized. This cannot be, this cannot be the ancestry, spiritually speaking, of Baptists because the Waldensians clearly believed in a form of baptismal regeneration. They believed that You don't baptize a baby because babies baptized does not make them automatically go to heaven because salvation is based upon what we do for the Lord. It's based on a body of work that can only be done as an adult. So the first real group of people to challenge infant baptism were the Anabaptists in the 1500s around the year 1522. And they were the ones that challenged the reformers. They challenged Luther. They challenged Calvin. Most of them were considered heretics because they believed in other heretical doctrines. Samuel Miller, who wrote a work in the 1800s, a Presbyterian minister, comes to the conclusion, and I'll just read to you his conclusion. He says this, and I quote, If... For the first 1,500 years of the church, there was no true baptism in the church because all practiced infant baptism. Then that leaves us asking an important question. Can we imagine that the great head of the church, Jesus Christ, would permit one of his own precious ordinances, namely baptism, to be banished entirely from the church for many centuries? And then he says, surely the thought is abhorrent to every Christian feeling, end quote. In other words... Let me put it to you this way. Is it possible? Is it possible that the apostles did not practice infant baptism, that Origen was wrong or lying when he says that infant baptism was passed down by the church fathers? Is it possible that that the early church practiced infant baptism not because the Bible taught it, but because it was an erroneous sort of tradition that crept in very early in the life of the church and went unabated for 1,500 years. Is that possible? And the answer is absolutely, is it possible? But the question is, is it likely? Is it likely that God would allow the first 1,500 years of the church, the infancy of the church, the most crucial period of the church's existence for there to be mass universal confusion on something as important as an ordinance of the church? Well, it's possible. But the question is, is it likely? And so the first weight of evidence that suggests 
infant baptism should be favored over believer's baptism alone is the consistency of church history. Not only in the first 1,500 years, but the continuation of the practice of infant baptism now redefined from the perverted understanding of the Roman Catholic Church, which held the baptismal regeneration, redefined by Calvin, redefined by Luther, understood in a more orthodox way as covenantal. Understood as a sign that replaces circumcision. And that's how the reformers understood it. Now, if you're not convinced by that weight of arguments, it's a, argument, it's okay because that is the least weighty argument. But it is a legitimate argument and you have to be honest with church history. We say all the time that God is sovereign. He's sovereign over, what is he sovereign over? Well, he's sovereign over, number one, giving us this book. He's sovereign in inspiring the word of God. He's sovereign in, in writing down his truth for us to understand. But God is also sovereign over history, isn't he? He's sovereign over church history. He's sovereign over preserving orthodoxy, preserving doctrine. And so he is sovereign even over the orthodox practices of the church. So the first argument in favor of covenant infant baptism is the consistency of church history. There's a second argument, and to that we turn to the scriptures, and that is number two, the clarity of, on New Testament examples of baptism, the clarity on New Testament examples of baptism, the Baptists argue this way. And this used to be my argument. There is not one example in the New Testament of an infant being baptized. And in fact, they argue even above that, that every example in the book of Acts of someone being baptized that we can see explicitly with our eyes is an example of an adult baptized after a valid profession of faith. In fact, this was my argument when I was in seminary at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I came very close to jettisoning, jettisoning my Baptist convictions and transferring to Reformed Theological Seminary and becoming Presbyterian, I was only 22 years old. But the reason that I didn't do it as I studied the issue of baptism was based on this. This was my argument. Actually, I had two arguments. One argument was the word baptize literally means immerse. And so I reduced my study to a word study. Therefore, the only legitimate form of baptism is immersion. The second argument was, I cannot find one example in the New Testament of an infant being baptized. But you do realize you can counter-argument that with this statement. Sure, there is not one example of an infant being baptized in the New Testament, but there is also not one prohibition by the apostles that says you cannot baptize an infant. Both arguments are essentially made from silent, silence. But here is one thing that is true, and, and this is valid in the book of Acts. New Testament convert, converts were all first-generation Christians. They were first-generation Christians. Why would we assume that there would be any other sort of baptism in the book of Acts 
other than the baptism of first-generation converts, that is, namely Jews who realized they had crucified their Messiah and needed to repent of that and look to Him as their Savior. And obviously, after doing that, they were baptized because baptism replaced circumcision and they were following in the line of their father Abraham, Genesis chapter 17, who also was a first-generation convert. And after he believed, he was circumcised so that a change from credo baptism to pedo baptism isn't an issue of subtraction it's simply an issue of addition in other words to hold infant baptism doesn't mean that you reject adult baptism when there's a valid profession of faith when an adult validly professes his faith in christ as a first generation christian obviously he must be baptized Infant baptism is not the narrow position. Credo baptism is the narrow position because they subtract infants from the equation. An infant, someone who holds the infant baptism is simply adding infants to the equation. And so it is sort of an, an obvious statement to make that the examples we have in the book of Acts are adult baptisms. Of course, they're adult baptisms The missionary work of the Apostle Paul was to adults to get those adults to convert and to turn from their sin. And once they turned from their sin, then they were baptized. This was the Great Commission to preach the gospel. But do you also understand this simple stat? Roughly one-fourth of all the examples of baptism in the book of Acts include entire households being baptized. 25% of the examples in the book of Acts where people are baptized includes entire households being baptized. In those discussions, for example, you can turn with me to Acts chapter chapter 16 and the Philippian jailer There's many of them. We could go to Acts 10, Acts 11, Acts 16, which speaks about Lydia being converted and her household being baptized. But we'll just look at one for right now, the Philippian jailer. And you obviously know it. The Philippian jailer is in prison. And Paul is in prison. He is a worker, a prison guard. Paul and Silas are there in prison. And of course, the foundations of the prison are shaken by God. The doors are open. Everyone's bonds are unfastened, verse 26 says. And then we read, the jailer, verse 29, called for the lights to be put on. Trembling, he fell down before Paul and Silas. They brought him out to him. And what does he say? He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. First generation believer. And then it adds you and your household. And so verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him, to all who were in his house. He took them the same hour of the night. He washed their wounds and he was baptized at once. He and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house He set food before them. He rejoiced along with his entire household. And why was that? The end of verse 34, they rejoiced that he had believed in God. The entire household rejoiced that the father had believed in God. 
They rejoiced in the fact that he had repented of his sins, that he had believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He had asked the question, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he believed. And why did his household rejoice? They rejoiced because he had the capacity to demonstrate faith, to repent of his sins, and to believe. But the text says that he was baptized, the end of verse 33, he and all his family. It says nothing about those in his family becoming believers. On this day, now maybe they too repented of their sins. I assume he had a wife, and obviously she would have been an adult. She would have had the capacity to repent of her sins and believe. Maybe there were older children in this household, and maybe they believed as well, and they were baptized. But any infants and young children that were part of this household who didn't have the spiritual capacity to demonstrate faith were also baptized. Oscar Kuhlman, New Testament scholar and church historian, says that the Greek word oikos, that's the Greek word for household, indicates almost always the presence of children and likely small children, that is likely infants. So there isn't one explicit example of an infant being baptized in the New Testament, but there is the example of entire households being baptized based upon the professed belief of the head of the household, namely here, the Philippian jailer. There's also not one example in the entire book of Acts of a second generation professing belief who is baptized. So there might not explicitly be an example of an infant being baptized, but there's also no example of, say, a teenager professing belief or a 10-year-old professing belief, a, a second-generation believer who professed belief and was baptized. So just because the Bible doesn't have an example of an infant being baptized does, does not mean you therefore don't baptize an infant any more than it means if you have a professed 10-year-old who professes faith in Christ, you don't baptize them because there's no New Testament precedent for that in the Bible. The reason there's not New Testament precedent for that in the book of Acts is because you're dealing with first generation Christians and the reason you have whole households who are absorbed into the church is because most of these people were Jews who understood the covenant and they understood when thinking back to father Abraham that just as Abraham circumcised his entire household so too must their entire household be baptized there is by the way not one example not one example in the New Testament, of a woman partaking of the Lord's Supper. Not one. And yet no one would make the argument that because there's no example of a woman partaking of the Lord's Supper, that she shouldn't be offered the Lord's Supper. So why would we make the argument that the children of believers should not receive the other sacrament, which is baptism? Now the arguments get more weighty than that we could spend a lot of time speaking about Lydia and you know people say all the time well Lydia believed Lydia was a believer well the only reason that you think Lydia was a believer is because you are making an inference from scripture in fact turn back in Acts 16 turn back to the conversion of Lydia in verse 14 one who heard Paul preaching was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. That is, she was a proselyte. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, 
Again, the language of household baptism, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us, Luke says. Verse 14 says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, we infer from that statement that that means she not only mentally understood the gospel, but that she repented of her sins and placed faith in Christ. The text does not say she did that. We infer. What is being implied by Luke is that the Spirit of God quickened her heart, and the result of that quickening, the result of that regenerating work, was the response of faith and repentance. But we have to infer that from the text. And therefore, why would it be wrong to infer when it says in verse 15 that after she was baptized in her household with her, why is it wrong to infer that her household included children? It seems to me it's a very natural thing to assume that all of these households included children. And if they included children, what is the likelihood that they didn't include small children and and also perhaps even infants but there is more argumentation that needs to be considered five weighty arguments in favor of covenantal infant baptism number one the consistency of church history number two the clarity on the new testament examples of baptism and why we only see adult baptisms but number three the consideration of the meaning of the covenant sign and this is really the most important issue if you turn with me to romans chapter 4 We see the Apostle Paul making a gospel argument. Paul's point in Romans chapter 4 is that we are only justified by faith. That was true with Abraham, that's true with us. Romans 4 verse 3, what does the scripture say? Paul says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, Paul says, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but simply believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. In other words, Paul is saying that we are saved the same exact way that Abraham is saved. And that's why he says in Romans 5 and verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are declared righteous through our faith through our belief. So a biblical view of baptism, whether you're a credo-baptist or you're a paedo-baptist, never views baptism as a rite or a ritual that leads to automatic salvation. Paul is clear about that here. For adult believers, in both covenants, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the sign, whether circumcision in the Old Covenant, baptism in the New Testament, is always applied only after faith is present. The person is an adult. That much is not in question. What's in question is what about the children of parents who are in covenant with God? What about all those children, those second generation birthed Christians that the New Testament in the book of Acts seems to not speak to? Do they receive the sign of the covenant in the same order as their parents? In other words, must they repent and believe and then be baptized? Well, Paul is uh, giving Abraham as an example, isn't he? He's saying, hey, the way that Abraham, the first generation believer, was saved was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He believed and therefore he was declared righteous. It was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham is the example for all first generation believers. All right, we get that. 
He received the sign of circumcision after he believed. But what of his son Isaac? Paul's using Abraham as an example. So if he's an example, what about his son Isaac? Well, Isaac, as you well know, received the sign of circumcision, the sign of the covenant before faith. Before faith could be humanly detected as an infant eight days old, he was circumcised. So Abraham believed and then was circumcised, but Isaac, a second generation Christian, was circumcised and then he believed. So I say that to say this, one better have a solid biblical reason to say that the pattern has changed in the new covenant just because the sign has changed to baptism. And in fact, that is Paul's argument in Colossians chapter 2. If you turn over with me to Colossians chapter 2, Paul makes this argument. He clearly equates circumcision and baptism as respective signs. Verse 11 Paul says, in him also, Colossians 2 verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. He's clearly equating circumcision of the old covenant with baptism of the new covenant. And and what is his point? Well, his point seems to be here in the text that circumcision that is made without hands is a spiritual circumcision, which is now signified by baptism, the work of the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul would make this statement. And you don't have to turn there, but just listen. This was an absolutely startling statement for those that first read it. But Paul said this, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul is saying in Colossians chapter 2, that to be spiritually circumcised, is the most important thing. By the way, that's exactly what Moses said. You say, wait, the same Moses that circumcised his children, the same Moses that commanded all of God's people must circumcise the next generation? Yeah, Moses said this, Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, to keep the commandments, statue of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers. He chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, you are this day circumcised, therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. The Lord your God is a God of gods, a Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial. He will not take a bribe. Do not think, in other words, just because you've been physically circumcised that you're spiritually circumcised. There has to be a spiritual circumcision. What is Paul saying in Colossians 2? He's saying that the sign has changed. Physical circumcision in the Old Testament never made one automatically saved. And baptism in the New Testament doesn't make one automatically saved. This would be true even if you hold the believer's baptism only. You would never say just because someone is baptized, it makes them automatically a believer. Paul is saying there is a spiritual circumcision that takes place without hands. It is a work of God on the heart. And circumcision in the Old Testament pointed to that. 
Well, what points to that in the New Testament? Well, it's baptism. The sign changes, but the salvation promises do not. Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and when he saw it, he was glad. Paul said in Galatians 3.8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel before unto Abraham, saying, and you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So the sign changes. The sign changes, but the salvation doesn't change. So the question is, does the way the sign is applied change? And I would say, well, why would it change? When Abraham is used as an example, again, back in Romans chapter 4, turn back there just for a moment. What does Paul say in verse 9? He says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? What blessing? The blessing God gave Abraham. Then in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The blessing God gave Father Abraham, that he would bless his offspring, that he would bless his seed, and that Abraham needed to show his faith in God by applying that rite of circumcision, which pointed to the promises of God. Those blessings, is this blessing then only for the circumcised, Paul says, or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham had before he was circumcised circumcision was a seal verse 11 a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith Christ is only possessed by faith but the seal or the sign did not point to Abraham's faith it pointed to a righteousness outside of him an alien righteousness namely the righteousness of Christ this is not Abraham being circumcised to point to his subjective personal faith. This is Abraham being circumcised to point to the righteousness of Christ, an alien righteousness that existed outside of him that he must trust in, that he must believe in in order to be justified. Circumcision was never a sign that this person is righteous. It was a sign that God is righteous. It was a sign that God is faithful. It was a sign that God would be faithful to his promises for all who believe. The sign seals something true about Christ, his righteousness, not something true about the person that receives it. The sign seals something that is true about the Redeemer, not about the redeemed. It points to the promises of God. And this is why you could have Jacob and Esau who both receive the sign and the seal of circumcision, but only one have true faith, namely Jacob. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Esau received the sign, but he wasn't a believer. He proved not to have faith. So the sign when applied to Esau did not prove his faith. The sign is administered as an act of faith on the parents to point to the promises of God that if one believes in the righteousness that is to come, namely the righteousness of Christ, one can be forgiven. So what about 
the new covenant. I mean, that was true in the old covenant. What about the new covenant? Turn with me to the book of, of Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. It's very interesting. Paul has equated baptism and circumcision. We just read in Colossians chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 1, what do we read? Verse 4. While staying there with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus is speaking about a type of baptism that is a spirit baptism, right? But he compares the spirit baptism to John's water baptism. What is Jesus speaking about? Well, he's speaking about the day of Pentecost. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. Jesus is comparing the coming of the Holy Spirit to the baptism that John performed. And what do we see in Acts chapter 2? But Peter making the connection that Jesus made with the coming of the Spirit. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, that is the preaching of the gospel, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You need to bear in mind that continuity between the covenants does not suggest a new way of salvation, just a new sign. Physical circumcision was symbolic, um, symbolic of the work of the Spirit in regenerating a heart. Paul makes that clear in Colossians chapter 2. What Peter is equating here is he speaks about the Holy Spirit and he speaks about baptism in the same breath. What I want you to see is this. Peter's promise extends, like God's promises to Abraham, to the adult listeners who ask the question. They ask the question when they were cut to the heart, brothers, what shall we do? Peter, a Jew, doesn't hesitate to include their children in what is being promised. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. You know what I think? I think Peter has Genesis 17 on his mind. There are three groups that he addresses in verse 39. Look at it closely. He says, for this promise, number one, is for you. Who are the you? The you are the adult listeners who ask the question, what do we do? The answer is you need to repent, right? You need to believe in Christ. Peter says this promise is for you. That's the first group, the adults asking the question. But then he says, and for your children, that is your seed, your offspring. And then a third group, notice he says, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Who is that? That's Gentiles who are brought into the household of faith. These are Jewish adults who have Jewish children. And Peter is saying this promise, this promise which is verified by baptism is for you. You need to repent of your sins and believe, but it's also for your children and it's for all who are far off, Gentiles. 
Three groups of people. Now keep your finger there and turn back with me to Genesis chapter 17. Because the same three groups are present. Genesis 17, verse 7, God says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant, notice, between me and you. Abraham is the adult. There's the first group. All first generation believers like Abraham, between me and you. Here's the second group. And your offspring, your seed, after you, notice this, throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant. This covenant is not abrogated. It's everlasting. It has everlasting dimensions. Why else do you think Peter would borrow the words from Genesis 17 that this promise is for you and your children? He understood this is an everlasting covenant. It has everlasting elements that apply to the children of believers. And then the third group, to be God to you and your offspring after you, the third group, skip down to verse 13, both he who is born in your house, he who is bought with your money, shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. In other words, you even have in God's promise to Abraham the inclusion of Gentiles, Gentiles who were brought in to the household of Abraham, maybe who were slaves of Abraham, workers of Abraham, those born in his house, those bought with money, those Gentiles had to be circumcised as well. You have a prelude here in Genesis 17 to exactly the three groups of people that Peter addresses in Acts chapter 2. To you, to your children, to all who are far off, Gentiles. So that in the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant, the same three groups of people, in essence, are being addressed. Now here's the question. If under the Old Covenant... The promises were made to believers and the believer Abraham and his children, Deuteronomy 7, 9 to a thousand generations. And part of the stipulations for obedience to the covenant included circumcising their children, by the way, at the threat of being cut off. That, that was the language of Genesis 17. If they didn't circumcise them, And Peter has the same salvation promises made to Abraham on his mind, seeing them being fulfilled in the new covenant with the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And since he mentions promises of the new covenant are to children of these believing adults, and since he mentions baptism in the same breath of mentioning all of that, are we really going to assume he doesn't want those children to be baptized? Infants and small children. Let me just say this. If he had not meant for them to be baptized, we would know it. And here's why we would know it. For surely Scripture would have recorded the first church fight in its young existence. You mean to tell me that my children that are circumcised don't belong to this covenant? Peter obviously wasn't excluding the children. The fact that Peter only implies babies are to be baptized instead of explicitly commanding it doesn't prove that infant baptism shouldn't be practiced today. Just the opposite. He doesn't have to explicitly command it because these Jewish parents would have naturally understood their children receive the sign of the new covenant, which is baptism. You need to remember that the controversy over circumcision in the New Testament 
later on was not whether Jewish parents should continue circumcising their children. There's evidence they continue to circumcise their children and baptize their children. The question was, does a Gentile who converts to Christianity need to be circumcised as a means of salvation? And Paul said, absolutely not. Paul was not fundamentally against circumcision in principle. He was against it in terms of it saying that it made one automatically a believer. So the weight of evidence in favor of covenant infant baptism, number one, the consistency of church history. Number two, clarity on New Testament examples of baptism. Number three, consideration of the meaning of the covenant signs. There's a fourth line of evidence. And that is the continuity of covenant membership. Other than the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 17, which I think Peter undoubtedly borrowed the language from in Acts chapter 2, this promises for you and your children. What other authoritative assurances did he possess that children were included in the promises of the new covenant? I mean, how can Peter say that? This promise is for you and your children. How can he say that? Did God speak directly to him to tell him to include the children? Well, I would just say this, God didn't have to because the Old Testament spoke to it. Peter said in 1 Peter 1.19 that we all have the Old Testament. He says later, he refers to it as the prophetic word made more sure. The prophetic word made more sure. What were the prophetic assurances that Peter possessed that children of believers were members of the new covenant just like the old covenant and then assuming from that that these children were to be baptized. Well, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 7. I've alluded to it already. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations to a thousand generations. It's everlasting. And notice he keeps covenant and steadfast love with those that love him to a thousand generations. He is a, a faithful God. Why are we quick to assume that these promises are abrogated to our children? Well, people say, well, because the new covenant is different. The new covenant only includes professing believers who have been immersed. Well, that's not what Ezekiel thought. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel prophesies about the new covenant. Very interesting language. Pick up with me in verse 24. Ezekiel says, my servant David shall be king over them. They shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules, be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It'll be an everlasting covenant with them. Amazing language. The new covenant promises are greater. Greater faithfulness of covenant parents with their children. Ezekiel is predicting the days of the new covenant when the son of David would rule over his people. 
This is the new covenant. Or Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 21, As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you. My words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Another prophecy of the new covenant. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 22, They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. My chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. They shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants after them. Their descendants after them. All prophecies of the new covenant. And perhaps my favorite, Jeremiah chapter 32, picking up in verse 38, they shall be my people, I'll be their God. I'll give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I'll put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Mary in the Magnificat that she sings. And Luke chapter 1 extols God. Psalm 103, verses 17 and 18, that from generation to generation, God has been faithful. Mary was a living member of the new covenant era. What are all these prophecies traced back to? All the prophecies about the new covenant that include children, they're all traced back to Genesis 17. They're traced back to God's words to Abraham that this is an everlasting covenant. It cannot be abrogated to thy seed and thy seed after thee. And some say, well, how can you speak about the church being the Israel of God? That is to spiritualize the text. Okay, I will not spiritualize the church unless Paul does. And Paul does. Paul is clear in Galatians that the church is the Israel of God. That's what he calls it. He says in Romans 4 that the promised Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. He says that Abraham became heir of the world. What did God tell Abraham in Genesis 17? He would be an heir of Canaan. What was Canaan? That that was figurative for the world. That was pointing forward to the fact that Abraham would be the father of many nations. And in fact, in Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul speaks to the children of the covenant, He tells them to obey their parents in the Lord, to honor their father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you, that that you may live long in the land. That's very interesting. Paul applies to believing Gentile children. These former pagans living in Ephesus, the same promise God made to Abraham, they would live long in the land. They would live long on the earth. Now how in the world can what was taught to Abraham 
and being an heir of Canaan be applied to these Gentile children. Only if what God meant to Abraham was a spiritualization of Canaan, that the true Canaan is the whole world and that God's intention from the beginning was to save not just Jew but Gentile because Abraham would be the father of many nations. And in fact, (laughs) that's exactly what Paul says. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He says to these Gentile believers, you at one time were strangers to the covenants of promise. What's the implication of that? The implication is you are no longer strangers to these covenants of promise and neither are your children. Because the children of Abraham were not strangers to the covenants of promise. Some say that you have to interpret the Bible literally. That you can't spiritualize. But yet these same people spiritualize where they want to. In other words, they say only spiritual children of Abraham are members of the new covenant and not their physical children. But then they don't spiritualize Canaan. They say it is the literal fulfillment in a literal future in a literal Canaan to literal Israelites. So let me get this straight. Literal Israelites have literal children who literally receive literal promises, but spiritual Israelites, that is Gentile believers in the new covenant who also have literal children, cannot have promises literally applied to them. It's inconsistent. By the way, how does God view marriage? Turn back with me to the book of Malachi. God has not changed one bit In the book of Malachi, God views marriage as a covenant. Verse 15. Verse 14, but you, why is he not here? Because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Speaking to Judah who has profaned the covenant. Verse 15. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? In other words, marriage has a blessing on it. It is a covenant union. And why does God have marriage? Marriage between a male and a female. That is the only kind of marriage. I hope you recognize that. Male and female marriage. Why? Why marriage? Notice the rest of the verse. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. You're telling me that the purpose of marriage is to have babies so that God can have more people in his kingdom? It's exactly what Malachi 2 is saying. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Why? Verse 16, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence. Why is marriage so important? Because it's a covenant. And the implications of that covenant union picture 
The church is covenant with God. What is the purpose of marriage? The purpose of marriage is to birth into the world Christians. You don't do that carnally and physically. We believe in the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. But God has so designed the world that when one man and one woman come together, they have a portion of the Spirit in their union. That's the language of verse 15. When two Christians get married, there is a portion of the Spirit in their union by which God naturally and most often produces godly offspring. How are those offspring saved? Listen, they're only saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. There is no other way to be saved. You're not birthed into the kingdom physically. You're not birthed into the kingdom just because you have Christian parents. You don't enter the kingdom by baptism. But baptism can signify what the Spirit of God and His regenerating work often does upon Christian parents and their household who produce children. The result is godly offspring. That's God's words, not mine. God says my whole purpose of marriage is to produce godly offspring. And what have we been studying in the Gospel of Mark? Mark chapter 10 verses 1 through 12. Is it lawful to divorce a wife? What does Jesus say? Yeah, there's a provision. God has made a concession. But you need to remain married. What is the very next topic? Verses 13 through 16. Children. The very next topic is children. Children are coming to him by Christian parents, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're bringing their babies to Jesus. He's picking them up in his arms. He's blessing them. And of course, the disciples are trying to prevent that. And Jesus says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the children of God. These children belong in the children of God. Malachi 2.16, the whole point of marriage is to produce godly offspring. That is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.14, you can have a pagan and a believer who are married and God still gives a blessed portion of his spirit to that covenantal union and that the children of that covenantal union are considered clean. They're considered sanctified. They're considered different from pagan children, not because they're automatic, automatically believers, but because a blessing and the portion of the spirit of God is upon that household that if these parents are faithful covenant members and raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, even one unbelieving parent, the result is often godly offspring. Godly offspring. Listen, if we treat our children as members of the covenant throughout their lives, they will never prove to be anything other than children of the covenant. If we teach our children that they are strangers of the covenant, that the blessings of God are not upon them, that it is up to them that it is up to them if they want to enter the kingdom of God. You leave it up to your children and they might continue being strangers of the covenant. God has blessed marriage. God has blessed the family in such a way that he has said, this is the way that I normally work when a faithful parent teaches the gospel to their children. They will very naturally believe. Only God gives faith. But when we feed our children the covenant sign, God most often grants that faith. 
There can't be a marriage without two people, male and female. There can't be a family without children. There can't be tribes without families. And there can't be a nation without tribes. So nations include children, right? Where's the gospel supposed to go? It is supposed to go to the nations. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Nations include children, right? What's the next word? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm with you because you're doing what I told you to do. I'm with you because I have blessed marriage as a covenantal union. I'm with you because I've given a portion of my spirit on your marriage and on your household. I'm with you because I've commanded you to baptize them, to disciple them. The way that you disciple them is first by baptizing them. And then you teach them to observe all I have commanded you. That is a weighty argument. If ever there's a verse that teaches infant baptism, it's it's Matthew 28, 19. It's a verse that many Baptists use to to tout the Great Commission. It's a verse that many Baptists use to, to teach the fact that we are to go into the nations and preach the gospel and then baptize, but... Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples. Here's how you do it. You baptize them first. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you teach them to observe all I've commanded. Now, obviously, for first-generation Christians, they first have to believe, and then they're baptized. But God is after saving the nations, which means he's after saving children, which means he's after saving households and what is most naturally going to occur for any thinking Christian is this. Before I go out of this country to try to reach someone for Christ, I want to reach my children first. How do I do that? Matthew 28 19. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as a sign of God's covenant promise that he has generationally saved the children of believers and then you don't trust in that sign of baptism. If you trust in that sign of baptism alone, then you have a false assurance. What else are you supposed to do? Verse 20, teach them to observe all I've commanded. That is, raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Give them the gospel. Raise them in a Christian home. Educate them about theology and have faith that God will save them. It's a weighty argument. Five weighty arguments. The consistency of church history, clarity on New Testament examples of baptism, consideration of the meaning of the covenant signs, the continuity of covenant membership, just to say this, the children of believers, it is very clear, were members of the new covenant. They are members. Here's the fifth line. Weighty argument. The comparison of the new covenant to the old covenant proves the new covenant is better Hebrews 8, the new covenant is better. The new covenant is better. We're in a better covenant. That's the argument of the book of Hebrews. And just to pose this question to you. This is a better covenant, number one, because Matthew 28, the gospel is reaching the nations. Do you realize there are Christian churches on the continent of Africa 
that 50 years ago had never even heard who Jesus Christ was, who are now commissioning missionaries to go to Europe to preach the gospel. That is how far and wide and expansive God's blessings are in the new covenant, that the gospel is reaching the corners of the world. It's a better covenant. Not only that, but the sign of the covenant is applied not just to males like it was in the Old Testament. Only males were circumcised. But now the sign is applied to females. We baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not just males, but also females. The sign of the covenant has included females. The, the covenant has included the nations. So you're going to tell me that this covenant is better because it includes the nations and it includes females but it doesn't include the children of believers? The most precious group of people? Paul said, this gospel goes to all the families of the earth. Genesis 12, 3, you will be a father of many nations. All the families of the earth will be blessed in you. Acts three twenty five: families of the earth. Household baptisms, Cornelius, Philippian jailer, Lydia, Stephanus, all of these. If I could show you evidence of children present in a household baptismal setting, it would argue in favor of pedo-baptism. Now at the beginning we said explicitly there was no evidence of children being present. We're assuming children were present, right? We're assuming Lydia had children. We're assuming the Philippian jailer had children. We're, we're assuming that if the language of household is used, then there's children present. But let's assume for a second that there weren't children present. Do we have any example in the Bible of households present with children where those children were baptized. And I think we do. Turn with me back to Acts chapter 2 and we'll wrap all of this up. Acts chapter 2. I want you to notice with me the context because we've yet to really see it. What is happening on the day of Pentecost? Notice with me in verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews. All right, so that's the audience. They're Jews. Notice what it says. Devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this, the the, the sound, the multitude came together. They were bewildered. Each one was hearing them speak in his own language. You have the pouring out of the Spirit of God. The language of devout men. Skip with me to verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Who did he address? Men. Men of Judah. And then all who dwell in Jerusalem. Men of Judah, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Verse 29. 
Brothers, I may say to you with confidence, and he speaks about the patriarch David, verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Who was asking that question? Who was making that appeal? The men, the brothers, the devout men, the men of Israel, the men of Judea. Throughout Peter's sermon, which is the first sermon of the new covenant, Peter is making his appeal to the heads of households. Their families were present. Their wives, their children. And what does he say in verse 38? Peter said to them, here's his response. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He tells these men, listen, verse 38, repent. Repent. You're a man. You have the capacity to demonstrate faith. You know that you have crucified your Messiah. What must you do? Repent. Repent. And then he says, and be baptized. It'd be natural, right? First generation believer. Repent and be baptized. Abraham believed and was circumcised. Lydia believed and was baptized. The Philippian jailer believed and was baptized. Peter says, repent and be baptized, you men. And then he says this. Every one of you. Every one of you. Baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. The men represented the individuals in the households, every one of them. Does this not, at a minimum, suggest a commandment by Peter that the adults repenting needed to baptize their children? They represented their households. They had the spiritual capacity to demonstrate faith, they were to repent. And be baptized, but every one of them was to be baptized. Children were clearly present. The men were taking lead for their households. There's no mention of a revolt. There's no question as why to as why the sign did not apply to their children. And that's because they naturally assumed that it did. Are we to think and this is the easiest way to think about this. Are we to think that on the morning of Pentecost, before it happened, that the children of Abraham, these Jews, who had been physically circumcised, who later repented of their sins and were baptized, these adults, who had children, Literal children present who were part of the promises of God and the covenant of God. Are we to think that at that glorious moment, 
when their parents repented and were baptized, that it kicked them out of the covenant. In other words, the morning of Pentecost, everything's great. Sure, we're all unbelievers, but at least the promises of God that were made to my parents apply to me. The moment those parents repent and are baptized, the promises no longer apply. They're kicked out of the covenant. In the morning, the children are part of the covenant. In the evening, they've been excluded. If that's what Peter was saying, there would have been a revolt. There would have been a church split. Peter doesn't have to explicitly say what is inferred from the text. This is, a, this is an example of household baptisms. The men of Israel, the men of Judea, being men, going to the apostles, hearing the preaching of Peter, asking what must be done, repenting, and bringing their families Wives to repent, children to be baptized in the hope that they would repent later. Romans chapter 11 is key because Paul is clear there that the natural branches have been broken off. The wild olive branches, that is Gentile believers, have been grafted in. But Paul says in that passage, you know it well, don't be arrogant. Don't you dare be prideful to think. God says through Paul, that I won't also break your branches off. What branches is he talking about? Well, he's not talking about the legitimate believing branches, right? He's talking about the olive shoots from those branches. He's talking about the second and the third generation of children of believers who may take their salvation for granted, who may think just because they're children of the covenant, they're automatically in the kingdom of God. And Paul's saying, listen, as this family tree of God begins to grow and olive shoots begin to pop out and the gospel goes out into the world, do not think for one second just because you grew up in a Christian home, just because you are a member of a church, just because you've been baptized, that you're automatically gonna go to heaven when you die. He's pointing them back to Christ. But he's assuming that there are olive shoots there that this family tree of God has a place for the children of believers. And how does the faith of our children grow? It grows by watering it through the sacrament of baptism because that's something a child holds on to for their whole life that they point back to and they say, I'm a child of the covenant and God has promised me By virtue of being born in this household, God has promised that his blessings extend to a thousand generations. It is not a false sense of assurance. It is a teaching opportunity. Son, daughter, this is why you were baptized. This is a sign of God's covenant. Psalm 128. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace 
be upon Israel. I don't know if you see baptism in Acts chapter 2. If you don't, I'll probably never convince you of infant baptism. And that's okay. But if you see the weight of Scripture favoring families, households, understanding the covenant sign, then what keeps you from heeding Jesus' words? Let the children come to me. Forbid them not. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. The problem with this issue is not baptism. The problem with this issue is a problem of the family. No understanding of the covenant, no understanding of what the head of a home does, no emphasis on a husband loving his wife, raising his children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, no faith on the part of the parents that God blesses a family when they do things right and in fact, he most often blesses a Christian family with godly offspring when they do things right. And yet we overcomplicate it. To me, it doesn't matter to me what your position on baptism is. What matters to me is that you understand your responsibility as a member of the covenant to raise your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord and to trust the promises of God that if he is going to save your children, he's going to do it a natural way and he's going to do it only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we as parents bear that great responsibility and we as a church, as adult covenant members, bear a great responsibility to do all that we can to retain our children. We do it not out of desperation. We do it trusting the promises of God that if we simply obey him, we will retain them. They will be saved and we will rejoice. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we covered far too much this morning, really too much to absorb and yet we understand that what we're speaking about is critical. It's important because we want to understand what your word says. We want to understand it rightly. Lord, we recognize that we might have difference of opinion, difference of view on baptism, but we understand the value of the family, the value of children, the importance of raising children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, the importance of recognizing them as receiving the overflow of the benefits of being part of a Christian home. We want to steward that well at the church. So help us to do that. Lord, we pray we would be faithful to you, Lord, in our observance of both of the sacraments and Lord as we faithfully preach the gospel may we trust that as we solidify the healthiness of our homes and solidify the healthiness of the church you will bless us and as Christians do that across these United States you could even cause a revival if it be your will but revival and reformation will only come through the family it will only come through generational successive blessings being claimed and depended upon by the people of God. Father, we pray that your family tree would continue to grow in the world. Help us to be obedient in our part to fulfill that, regardless of what position on baptism we hold to. Help us to be faithful to the gospel, the proclamation of Christ alone as the one who can secure our redemption. We thank you for your word and your truth. We ask your blessing upon it that you would seal it to our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.ChristReformedCC.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.PastorAndrewSmith.com.